polka, that's for me, living life so merrily. It's so easy, can't you see? Polka, polka, that's for me. Polka, polka, everyone, come along. Welcome back to the Talk and Shoot Boxing Podcast. I'm Miguel Dorati, and we are getting into boxing podcast number 59 here at Talk and Shoot. And uh, we're heading into February of 2018. We're going to do another one of our podcasts on the heavyweight division. It's just too much going on with the big boys to let it go for a lot longer. We're looking at real nice times here in the heavyweight division as we head into, into 2018. I mean, there's just no doubt that, you know, we got... The fights that we sort of want booked, I mean, it's not exactly uh, what we want, but let's go into the calendar here and, and, and see what I'm talking about. First of all, you got Anthony Joshua, 20-0, and he's the guy, you know, he's the number one guy. He's got Joseph Parker lined up. This is a title unification belt because you got Joshua with the IBF and WBA belts, and Parker holds the WBO world title. And that fight goes down March 31st, so we're about two months away now. And, you know, Joshua's the guy with the target on his back. Parker, you know, and him, they negotiated. Kind of got a little touchy. Everybody knows that Parker was going to be the B-side of that and, and, and get a little bit less money and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, he wanted to feel a little bit more respected, and they, they got it done. And, and, you know, truthfully, they got it done a lot easier than, than other fights that we've had to wait for and got extended and stuff. And the bottom line is Parker really didn't have all that much um, capabilities of negotiating or anything like that. I don't think, you know, it was ever in play for uh, Joshua to go to New Zealand or anything like that. So they're going to do it, and it's Principality Stadium, you know, up in Cardiff, and that's going to be the second time in a row, Parker, uh, the Joshua plays there. He beat Carlos to Comet that stadium in October of last year in his last fight. So you're talking about, you know, Joshua not fighting anywhere but, 80,000 seat stadiums at this point for the last three fights. So, you know, you're looking at the biggest draw in boxing there. You know, sorry Canelo and, and uh, Oscar and everybody, but you just have to uh, look at the sheer totality of things in, in, in the heavyweight division. So you got the Parker fight for Joshua, and obviously that's the one everybody wants to see, and that's, that's the main thing. But the other interesting uh, fight that's on there is the other champion, the WBC World Heavyweight Champion, Deontay Wilder is finally taking on Luis Ortiz. Now, this fight has been through the mill uh, in terms of trying to get it to happen. Um, you know, Ortiz has been the number one contender fighting a world championship, uh, you know, for a world championship and for the attention for a long time. Runs into a situation where he's got the fight canceled because of a steroid test. He went through whatever bureaucratic process, uh, you know, he went through to go ahead and get approved anyway. You know, you see the walls close around. And Wilder really needs a good opponent in order to maybe justify or, or, or to lift his star a little bit. Because he's got he's 39-0. And really, in those 39 fights, there's not really a, a whole lot of uh, world-class opponents on there. You know? And Ortiz represents that here. So that's good. And, and what I was going to get into is... You know, Wilder was scheduled to go to Russia and fight Alexander Povetkin. And, you know, a lot of people thought that, that Povetkin would be Wilder's undoing, that, you know, Wilder didn't really want the fight. But Wilder, I, I, I don't know behind the scenes what was going on, but Wilder was in England on his way to Russia for the fight. So, you know, with Povetkin failing a drug test, Wilder stayed in Russia. The fight got canceled. You know, Povetkin later on was supposed to fight Bermain Stiffen for an interim belt after serving a suspension, after doing all that sort of stuff. 
and then um, he blew hot again. And then th th this is to me the the the, the flag, the, the signal where people need to realize that the steroid thing is an absolute mess on a worldwide level. And that is, Pavekin was supposed to fight for an interim title against Bermain Stiverin in Russia. Pavekin blows hot. Stiverin's fight falls apart. Stiverin goes home. Pavekin fights anyway. They go through whatever bureaucratic process they want to do, and Pavekin still, I, and what he did was, he, he's no longer working with the WBC, no longer chasing Wilder or Stivern or any of those guys. He went ahead and paid sanction fees with the WBO, and now he's chasing Anthony Joshua and Pavekin. Pavekin never really stopped fighting. He's been active, and uh, there really is nobody looking at this stuff. So Wilder, of course, on record said, I'm never going to fight Pavekin. The guy's a drug cheat. And then Ortiz blows hot after that, and Wilder says, yeah, but him I'll give a second chance to. So everybody's a mess. Nobody even knows. But Wilder was backed into a corner because Pavekin was a credible opponent, falls by the wayside, all kinds of conspiracy theories. You know, say Wilder didn't want to fight him anyway or whatever. Hey, bottom line is, is one Wilder that tested hot. So, you know, Ortiz, again, a credible opponent. The fight has already fallen apart in the past. You know, Wilder's running out of credible opponents, and Wilder running right into the Joshua fight, Joshua may not fight Wilder next. Joshua's going to call the shots. So that's what's going on, you, you know, there. Joshua gets by Parker. He's got all the belts. Then Joshua's going to do what's good for Joshua, you know. Wilder's going to want the fight. Let's say Wilder beats Ortiz. and say he does it in interesting fashion. Joshua beats Parker. The logic would be, if everything was perfect, and the fans, I think, want to see Wilder Joshua, so if everything was perfect, Joshua can return to uh, Wembley in London and fight Wilder there at the end of the year. It'd be the huge fight, uh, and it would result in one heavyweight champion. Now, the problem for Wilder is, is Wilder really just still has limited options. You know, uh, Pavekin really isn't... Uh, working with the WBC, so let's say Pavekin's out of the picture, although, you know, at some point, everybody can get back in the mix here, and we're going to talk about some guys getting back in the mix uh, here as we continue, don't, don't you worry. But, you know, with Ortiz, so he gets by Ortiz, who's he going to fight if it's not Joshua next? Because what Joshua can do is Joshua can turn to any, you know, any one of a number of choices and, and go to a stadium, or still have a big money fight at the end of the year. And I'm talking about British choices. Uh, the winner of Tony Bellew, David Hay. If it's David Hay, David Hay versus Joshua Sells. Uh, Joshua versus Bellew. I don't know quite how much that would sell, but Bellew with a win off of uh, Hay, a second win in a row over Hay, would have to be in the conversation. Then you got the Ox, the big guy. Uh you know, the big uh, elephant in the room, the ox in the room, whatever you want to call him, and that's Tyson Fury. You know, Fury, at the end of the day, held a lot of the belts that Joshua did. At the end of the day, Joshua is riding, you know, the big win over Vladimir Klitschko. The first guy to beat him was Fury. Obviously, Joshua did it in a better fashion, more convincing fashion, more entertaining fashion, and you got to credit that. But Fury was the guy who held the belts, gave him up, so he never really lost the belts. And Fury, with his ability to talk and being a Brit and stuff like that, could certainly fight. You could argue that Fury and Joshua is a bigger fight than Wilder and Joshua. And if that's the case, then Wilder, you know, 
Wilder's going to be sitting a while, and, and how much of Wilder versus Eric Molina are we going to really want to see? You know, Wilder's really going to have to push to get the Joshua fight next, and Joshua's got options, and that is what makes that, uh, you know, a little bit of a dangerous situation. Now, in terms of Alexander Povetkin, um, you know, he's coming off a December win against Christian Hammer. That was, he paid sanction fees with the WBA and the WBO. And so he was issuing challenges to Pop, Parker and Joshua. Now they're going to meet, but you can bet that Povetkin's going to be floating around afterwards. And this is where Povetkin becomes an X factor here is, you know, once Povetkin, we already ran in, when Povetkin had his problem with the steroids, we already ran into his deep money promoter. Um, I don't want to maul his name here because we're, we're, we're taping on the fly, but we know uh, Shabransky, I think his name was. If not, uh, I think that's one of the fighters. But I, I'm not going to try to guess the Russian's name, but everybody knows Povetkin has a big money backer, and they're paying sanctioning fees with other groups and stuff. You know, so at some point, you know, Povetkin keeps winning too, which helps. So at some point, if Povetkin is named the number one contender, he becomes an option. Say, hey, you know, I'm going to fight the number one contender. Would Joshua fight? Joshua actually recently said he may never fight in the States. And, you know, to bring Joshua to Russia, the thing is, is would that Russian big money promoter break the bank and say, you know, look, I want to do this fight here. I'll pay you like nobody's ever paid anybody before. Uh, a flat fee, uh, and then you take home the rest of your money on top of it, something. You know, if they want it, they can make it happen. If money buys it, they can buy it. And that, you know, plays into what Joshua's still not going to want to do all his fights in England. I mean, I guess he could, but expanding a little bit and going to other markets, you know, Abu Dhabi always gets talked about and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff I see Joshua doing, looking for, um, you know, uh, Places that treat him the VIP treatment. You know, could China one day say we want to host the heavyweight uh, championship of the world? You know, it wouldn't be against a Chinese opponent, but maybe a huge glossy fight at one of the casinos there. I mean, those uh, outlets that are outside the United States throw money around that's, you know, bigger than the money in the States if they want. You know, and, and by what I'm saying is if a casino in Macau says we're going to have Joshua Fury here. We're going to pay each guy $100 million. Guess what? They're going to have Joshua Fury. And, you know, that sort of stuff. So, And I see Joshua doing that. And I see Joshua playing hardball with Wilder and playing hardball with Las Vegas. Las Vegas has this comfortable arrogance of, you come here, everybody makes more money. And, you know, Canelo relies on that Floyd. It's the Floyd Mayweather effect. Floyd, you know, monetized there like no other. But, you know, Joshua is, is potentially exploring other options. You don't have to go to Vegas, and I think that's what he wants to leave clear in the negotiating. And Joshua's moved beyond just, hey, we go to Vegas, everybody makes money, and it's good for everybody, so it's a default place to fall back on. Joshua's saying, wait a minute. So I, I see Joshua wanting to host the Wilder fight. Now, that's so far what we got going on here. And, and as I stated, uh, Povetkin stayed busy, and he went 2-0 in 2017. So... You're in a situation where Povetkin could be uh, the next guy. Ortiz, Ortiz could throw a fly in the ointment and beat Wilder. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. A lot of people really don't think that's going to happen. I don't want to get into you know, the conspiracy theories of boxing. But Ortiz is a tough opponent. You know, He brings what he brings. Um, I think Joshua beats him. Wilder should beat him as well. That's the thing. is, is I'm not a, as high 
on Ortiz. A lot of people still remember the Ortiz from a few years back. They came out and had a lot of hunger. But Ortiz has been through the mill and, and the uh, bureaucratic processes, and he's been hit in the face with what boxing can really be on the ugly side. Um, and I, I don't think he's what he once was. And plus there's the whole age factor where, you know, he may be in his 40s already. So you're in a situation there where Ortiz could throw a fly in the light, but I think the, the structure of, of what really needs to happen here is rigged sort of against Ortiz where, um, you know, Wilder and Joshua is the big fight, and with Wilder being the American champion and the American market in play, he still is the appealing guy. If Ortiz wins, Ortiz is now another guy who's been on the road for his fights and things like that. So you don't know how that goes. And then now that we've talked about all of them, really, you drop down into the next level of contenders, and Lucas Brown is still messing around here. And We've been talking about uh, steroids a little bit with Ortiz and with Wilder, uh, you know, and then Wilder and Pavekin, and those fights falling apart. And uh, when we come back here on the Talk and Shoot podcast, I am going to go ahead and get into a little bit more steroid talking. We'll go uh, around Lucas Brown as well. The following is an expert from Jose Corpus's Black Ink. A story of boxing, betrayal, homophobia, and the first Latino champion. Against Jeff Dixon's protests, Al Brown was set to defend his bantamweight title against Kid Francis in Marseille. It's stupid, exclaimed Dixon. Stupid, stupid, stupid. As soon as Brown arrived, the promoters in Marseille did everything they could to make the champion feel comfortable. They provided unlimited liquor, the best foods, and VIP access to all the best clubs. Prostitutes of all shapes and colors were made available. All Brown or anyone in his entourage had to do was ask. Francois Spiritu had plenty of experience with prostitutes. He ran prostitution rings in Egypt, France, Spain, and North Africa. It was in Egypt that he had met Paul Carbone. They partnered in a variety of endeavors, including a cheese smuggling ring and drug and arms trafficking. Carbone became the godfather of the Marseille underworld with Spirito a trusted capo. Aside from his responsibilities as a mediator of the French underworld, where he settled disputes between rival gangsters at his bar named Friendly, Spirito allegedly fixed fights for his cousins. One of Kid Francis's fights was billed, announced, and reported as a match against American Georgie Mack. It would have been a good win for the fighter had it happened. Months later, it was revealed that it was not Mack, not even a boxer, in the ring that day, but a local dock worker. The night of the fight, Spirito sat directly behind one of the judges. With one official already understanding his role, a second official needed to be convinced. Unbuttoning his jacket and holding it back far enough to let his piece show, he spent the night loudly giving his version of the blow-by-blow. Blow. Another round for Francis, he bellowed at the end of each round. No way Francis loses this fight, no way. When Brown landed a combination, Spirito quickly chimed in, Missed. Brown is hurt was another one of his favorite lines that night. The crowd was not much different. Each time Francis threw a volley, they roared as one. When Brown did, there was silence. The crowd was silent most of the night. One more round and we have a champion, shouted Spirito throughout the final round. Just one more round, he said while rising to his feet. He was joined by dozens as the entire arena chanted for the hometown fighter, but the official, Dr. James Sparks, commanding officer of the American Legion in France, was not the type who phased easily. 
Not even when guns, at least four, were brandished as he tabulated his score after the 14th round. A man described by newspapers as a hoodlum saw that Sparks had Brown winning the fight by a large margin. He thrust his revolver below Sparks' bottom rib and demanded he hand him the card. Sparks did, and when the bell rang for the final round, he climbed onto the ring apron and advised the referee of what happened. The referee had his own problems by then. At the end of each round, gangster types reminded him that Francis was to win the fight. He ushered Sparks off the apron and back to his seat, which was no longer there. In its place was about a half a dozen men who pinned him against the ring in a way Francis wished he'd been able to pin Brown along the ropes. Spirito and his crew blew their tops. More guns were drawn and shots were fired into the air. Shouts of change it were overheard while a few of them grabbed Sparks and tried to make him change his card. Sparks refused and gangsters ripped the scorecard into tiny pieces. One of them shoved the pieces into Sparks' mouth and made him eat them. Someone threatened to kill him while one bashed his head from behind and sent a stream of blood down his back. The Italian referee, wanting to make it back to Milan in one piece, held aloft his own card in the middle of the ring and, before disappearing for almost an hour, shouted, Look, I voted for Francis. Now was when Brown needed his legs most. He, his handlers, and the third official took off for the dressing rooms while a growing mob chased them. Fists started to rain down on Sparks' face while others decided to take their anger out on the seats. Someone tried to set fire to the ring, but the canvas didn't ignite. Women fainted, bottles were thrown, and random faces were punched. You can find Jose Corpus's Black Ink at Amazon.com. Hey, welcome back. I'm Miguel Dorati, and this is the Talk and Shoot Boxing Podcast. We're talking heavyweights here in the edition number 59. Now, Lucas Brown, God, you know, here's a guy that, you know, I, I, I don't know what kind of uh, state or, 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 or the sport, you know, is it a sport? Is boxing a sport? That's, I guess, it almost starts there when you consider that Lucas Brown was issuing challenges to WBO champion Joseph Parker. And, and the bottom line is here is this. Parker sort of had to listen because at the end of the day, Parker is from New Zealand, Australia. That's the market, so to speak, that, you know, where they could be big. And, you know, for a guy from New Zealand going to bigger Australia, you know, they fill up a stadium in the heavyweight championship of the world. Uh, Australians like their fights. I think they could sell that fight. Um... Brown has his own history with the world titles and things like that. So, um, you know, you, you, you start crafting a story. You ignore that uh, uh, Lucas Brown has failed two drug tests also. So you're talking about Ortiz, two tests. Lucas Brown, two tests. You know, after a successful defense, uh, you know, where he had failed the drug test in Russia, and everybody kind of said, yeah, but it was Russia, and, you know, who trusts them? So uh, Brown had successfully defended himself. And come away with, you know, was still in the ball game here. And then he failed another drug test. But he's laid low, stayed away from things. And, uh, you know, then when Joseph Parker uh, winds up with the championship, um, now you're in a situation there where uh, Joseph Parker and him exchange challenges and things like that. So now what do you have here? You got, the fact is, Lucas Brown fought a six-round fight in 2017 just to stay busy. He won by knockout in round two. Um, so that's irrelevant as a fight 
Now, on March 24th, he's scheduled to fight Dillian White in England. White 22-1, and one, obviously White the rival of uh, Anthony Joshua from the amateurs. They've already fought his pros. White trying to keep his record clean with the one defeat against Joshua, working his way for a rematch. White becomes an interesting opponent for Joshua if he continues to win and win impressively. He's won. He hasn't won impressively on every occasion. He had a, a, a slobber knocker with uh, Derek Chisora that got a lot of good reviews. He's looked flat on other occasions. If he levels Brown, you can look for him to look for a Joshua fight. And any one of these fights could sell and could put Wilder on the uh, back burner. Now, Lucas Brown, let me tell you a little bit about Lucas Brown. I like Lucas Brown. You know, he went to uh, Russia and beat Ruslan Chagayev. Chagayev had been paying the sanctioning fees with the WBA and held that belt for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he goes to Russia, blows hot on steroids and says, hey, look, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything. And, you know, whatever process went through there got confused. And at the end of the day, no one thought Lucas Brown was a steroid cheat and everybody was ready to move on and let him go ahead and do what he wanted to do. Uh, he signs up and, uh, you know, he's in uh, another fight and tests again hot in the pre-fight uh, tests. And then, you know, obviously he goes on and then we don't hear from him again until June of last year when he fought 16 and 20 Matthew Greer in the sixth rounder I was talking about. So you can imagine uh, Lucas Brown just wants a world title shot, you know. So the Dillian White fight is a WBC silver heavyweight title and that will leave him... If he beats uh, uh, Dillian White, you know, White and Brown, the winner for the WBC silver title, will leave them as a contender for Deontay Wilder. So now, what you have here is Joshua is very, very capable of beating Parker, uniting the belts, and then opting to fight David Hay or Tyson Fury at the end of the year, leaving Wilder to fight the winner of Dillian White and Lucas Brown. So now, if it's Lucas Brown and Lucas breaks through and beats White in England, and I think White will be favored, but uh, if Lucas breaks through, now you got Wilder facing another drug cheat. And Wilder's just really going to have to ignore all his talk about, you know, uh, never fighting drug cheats and, and how Pavekin was off his list and stuff like that. Because he's going to have to ignore the fact that Brown legitimately has tested, uh, you know, has uh, steroids and drug tests failed in his past as well. So it gets crazy, but you got Dillian White fighting Lucas Brown. That to be. You know, the Brits, we got the British Boxing Board of Control there. Obviously, they're they're established, and, and they run all the major boxing uh, in England at, at an extremely high level. But I got questions about what is the actual drug testing and things uh, over there. Are, are they just taking piss tests? Are, are they taking blood tests before the fight, six weeks before? You know, or is this world title fight just subject to tests around, you know, Maybe legislation that's 20 years old or whatever that we don't even, you know, that the ball game has changed with steroids, folks. That's what I'm getting at. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, if Lucas Brown, what kind of testing Lucas Brown's going to have to handle when he goes over for that title, to, uh, you know, WBC silver title. The WBC is the ones who call Pavekin twice. So is there a situation there where, you know, maybe they'll run uh, the third test on Lucas Brown and, and, uh, his latest bid will fall apart. Now, the David Hay and um, uh, Tony Bellew fight we talked about, this is going to happen. But it got pushed back here. It was supposed to already have happened. They met in March of, the, of 2017, and 
I, I give Tony Belli all the credit in the world here. He's the cruiserweight champion of the world. He said, you know, David Hay really has rubbed me the wrong way with his comeback. He's, uh, you know, he's not ready for a guy like me who's just uh, a pro and just does just this. He's a prima donna, and I'm going to go in there and knock him out late. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do and kind of exposed Hay um, as the aforementioned prima donna kind of thing. Now, Hay obviously has got some pride. And supposedly he's been taking the, uh, the rematch very seriously. And, and uh, you know, he's lost weight. He came in uh, puffy for the re uh, first fight with Bellew. Um, you know, uh, he, he weighed 224. He'd been, uh, you know, 210 before, uh, you know, when he fought uh, Vladimir Klitschko and the, that era of fights back in 2011, 2012. Derek Chisori, he was a 210. So he was about 15 pounds of muscle and slower than he was now, and he shed some of that. So, um, you know, maybe he'll have some of his speed. We do know that David Hay can punch. But Bellew, you know, can manage that if it's just that he's going to be loading up for one big punch, and he's already shown he can do that. So the rematch comes down to this. Hay is trying to save his ass. And, you know, Hay thought, hey, I'll fight Mark DeMori and Arnold Gurjaj uh, during my comeback. Yeah, uh, he got called out on it. He uh, Bellio at least created enough heat that um, they did the O2 Arena with it, and Hay made some money. Uh, but Bellio, like I said, did what he had to do, and he derailed David Hay's plans to meet Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury in a major money fight. So when you consider it, Hay now has to beat Bellio in order to really be relevant and and affect you know Tyson Fury coming back and and you know be in the running for. Uh, a fight with Joshua off a win and stuff. Let's focus on Tyson Fury a little bit. Because Fury's talking comeback. He's he's applied for his license again. He's getting help from one of the promoters over there. And, uh, you know, uh, we've seen him in the gym trying to shed the pounds. Now, he did he let himself go? Yes. But he's still a young man. And, you know, I think you got to give him a chance. And, you know... I'm not really the most forgiving guy in the world, but the fact of the matter is, is, you know, he's still a young man. He's still under 30 years old. He's been the world champion at the highest level, and he was undefeated. So, uh, I, I think you got to, I think there's a lot that has to be examined about his fall from grace and his, you know, drug use and things like that. And I think, you know, that there may be some things about being a traveler that prevented him from getting the accolades that we now see Anthony Joshua getting. And I think that that creates resentment in, 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 in Tyson Fury. And that that might be the seed to some of the problems that we saw. So at some point, you know, you're talking about a guy when he walked into the Klitschko fight, had everything going on all cylinders. His team, the preparation, the mind games, everything, it was elite. So you can't really cite them for that. So now Fury does know I'm coming back, and he knows to fall back to all that, and he's going to rely on some of those same tools. I'm not sure he's going to be with Peter Fury anymore. Uh, all that's up in the air, but he's going to be out there and be a formidable opponent. But does he fight Joshua in October, and that's the next time we see him? Or does somebody somewhere along the line, does Tyson himself say, I'd like to get... Back in the ring, some ring rust. Give me Arnold Gergadge or, or someone of that ilk. 
uh, to shake some ring rust off and get back in there, and then I'll challenge Anthony Joshua. What would be the next thing for Fury? Because if you have Tyson Fury, you know, is sitting there, it could Joshua and Wilder happen at the end of the year if all the money comes together? And then, then who? What does Fury fight if he was waiting for Joshua? So there's a chance you might see Fury back, and in a fight that's not Anthony Joshua, but. You know, I think he, he's going to look to go right to the big money. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. And a lot of it is like, you know, if Ortiz breaks through and wins, Ortiz is going to grab a payday. Maybe Fury says, hey, I'll take a WBO belt. Bring Ortiz here to England. Give him a decent payday, and I'll take that belt. So there's a, there's a lot of play there. But those are the top upper echelon guys that are in the mix in the heavyweight division. What, what else do you got there? You got... Carlos DeCamp, but he just had his shot uh, at, at, at uh, Anthony Joshua, and he looked decent in the late replacement spot. But, you know, come I don't know if everybody's clamoring to see him in a world title shot again. Then you got, uh, as I mentioned, you got Dillian White. You got Kubra Pulev there, and he's from Bulgaria, so that, that's a small market. But Pulev was the original opponent before Carlos DeCamp supposed to face Joshua this last at the end of last year. And uh, he had to pull out because of an injury. So, you know, Pulev is going to be there. One's beaten. He only lost to Klitschko. He's going to be there clamoring for his title shot at some point. And then from there, there's a real drop-off. you got guys that are, are working their way up. you got Americans, Dominic Brazil, Gerald Miller. you got Charles Martin, the guy who lost the IBF belt to Joshua way back when. you got uh, Adam Konaki, who's made a lot of noise as a heavyweight in, in the last year. At 17 and 0, that's what the American picture looks like. So I think the American picture is uh, a green heavyweight picture. You don't have um, a standout guy. Maybe Jarrell Miller is the most dangerous of them all. Miller, uh, 20 0 and 1. What makes Diller, Miller dangerous is he could be, uh, you know, 280 to 300 pounds and, and still be kind of, you know, a quick heavyweight. And that makes him a, a, a little bit bigger than most of the other guys. And that and even Joshua would be, you know, 40 pounds lighter than Jerome Miller if Miller should ever work his way up to a title shot there. So, you know, the heavyweight division, we're going to have two world title fights in the first quarter here. And I'm talking about Joshua and Parker for the title unification. Then you got Wilder defending against Ortiz. We're going to have two fights in the first quarter that really will let us know where we're heading in the rest of the, uh, of the heavyweight division. You know, um, if Joshua were to lose and Parker takes those belts, God, you know, that's a one of a different nature, and a lot of people aren't talking about that possibility. Uh, Wilder, uh, you know, would possibly, then, then that would leave the possibility of Parker Wilder in Vegas, and there's no doubt about that. I think the bugaboo to Vegas is, that Joshua's going to say, you know, you're telling me that you're the biggest thing going and, and that I, I got to go there, and I'm not so sure I have to go there. So you're starting to get Joshua, and I don't want to say prima donna, because, but you're starting to get Joshua behaving like the biggest draw in boxing, and I, I think he's earned it, you know. Another, a major, you got a major stadium being sold out here for his next fight against Joseph Parker. It's the second time he visits Cardiff, and you're going to be, in front of 80,000 people at the live event on Sky Pay-Per-View. Uh, the heavyweight division really has got uh, a, a bright future ahead of it. And you've got a situation where uh, Anthony Joshua is taking his place 
as the number one uh, heavyweight and the number one draw in boxing. He's taking over for Floyd Mayweather Jr., folks, and that's the bottom line. So we'll see if he keeps it going. We'll see if Parker throws the fly in the ointment. We'll see if Wilder continues to chase him. Heavyweight division, very exciting as we head into 2018. I'm Miguel Dorado. We've been talking shoot. This is Talking Shoot Podcast number 59. I am the heavyweights.